Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 84 of the podcast, the topic is the path towards science 2.0. Our guest is Jean-Claude Burgelman, professor of open science policy at the Free University of Brussels. In this conversation, we talk about the impact of digital on science and J.C. Bergelmann's career, which spans the EU, foresight, media, and tech assessment. We discuss the role of foresight in EU policy and what are the big challenges. The fallout of COVID-19 has compelled science from closed to open, from premium to collaborative. Is a fifth revolution in science irreversible? What has been learned? We talk about how the business model is shifting from articles to data and touch on next decade's science and publishing. Jean-Claude, great to uh, have you on the podcast. Hi, Trond. Nice to meet you indeed on this uh, quite uh, special day. Yes, it's been uh, it's been a special uh, day and night in the U.S. We are recording this right after the the Capitol riot, so that is a, a, actually a great thing to to mention, so people know exactly when this was recorded. Jean Claude, we uh, have an exciting discussion, I think, in front of us, which uh, you know we'll we'll touch on on a lot of things that are happening in in society. Um, you and I know each other from the EU, uh, and you have a, a long and, and illustrious career actually there working largely in technology foresight. A um, lot, lot of different areas within technology and policymaking and science, and we'll get into all of those. But uh, we met at the IPTS in Seville, so the European Commission's uh, foresight center there. Um, you have since moved on, and uh, you're taking now, uh, I understand, a very active role in open publishing, well, which we'll get to. Um, apart from that, you're also a university professor in, uh, you know, in science and policymaking. We'll get into the details. Uh, let me ask you this. The impact of science and foresight on, on, on policymaking is uh, evolving rapidly, but it wasn't always a topic on everybody's mind. You were in foresight long before m- many people you know, even, even bothered. What was it that got you into this complex set of issues? You know, does this go back to kind of your student days? Were you always involved uh, in, in issues like this? Or, or has this more naturally evolved over the last few years? No, it was actually a result of my, my, my PhD. So I did my PhD on, on the history of uh, telecommunication and broadcasting policy in Belgium, where I looked at how do standards in broadcasting and in telecom emerge and, and how the interplay between technology, economy and, and, and politics and policy shapes a new technology. And one of the, one, one of the books that I used in my, in my, in my uh, theoretical part of my PhD was Gilles de Solapoul, the, the famous MIT professor uh, on technologies of freedom. And uh, I, was, I was very seduced by that book because it actually looked at the future from this historical background. Uh, he also did some, uh, t- some, some very solid historic analysis to make predictions about how technologies might emerge. And not by taking a, a technology deterministic view, uh, it's not because you have a certain capability that it will become 
societal reality. That was something that I was really uh, intrigued by. So, and from then on, uh, almost uh, <clears throat> naturally, this trying to say sensible things about how the field of information technologies, which was then exploding. I did my PhD uh, in the 80s, the, the beginning of the internet, the beginning of the microprocessor and so forth. So it went hand in hand with, with, with what happened in society. So trying to understand where a fun, what I then already thought would be a fundamental technological innovation would, would shape our future societies has been uh, on, on my agenda in many different forms. You know, it's so interesting, Jean-Claude, that you that you actually have a very distinct story about how you got into that subject. M many of the people I, I interview actually similarly have, have these very formative experiences, whether it's a book, a professor, you know, a particular topic or a historical event. It's very interesting how people's lives uh, and, you know, literally for you, years and years of, of very strong uh, and, 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 you know, involved research has come out of a book, you know, one particular impetus. No, a book and also a drive. You know, my background is, so my degrees are in social science and a drive to make contributions to science from a social science point of view, which are more solid. That was my intellectual drive. So that you don't have, you know, uh, you, you also know that field, uh, Tron, that... Uh, a lot of the social sciences in those days certainly so made this kind of journalistic uh, evaluations or new technologies are bad. So it will, it, will, it will only create the end of society as we know it and our freedom will collapse. And, and Hilde de Solapur was one of the first to, to go against that, uh, that current from a very solid factual based kind of, well, he didn't call it forecasting, but for me it was a forecasting way of doing things. And that was also my, my, my intellectual drive. So my, my, my attention as a, as a researcher was the new, the new, the new uh, game on the block, ICTs. My drive as a scientist was trying to make more substantiated predictions about how things will evolve from a societal point of view than impressive anecdotal evidence that in those days I thought social sciences were mainly doing. So there's... Two things I want you to unpack, and you can decide exactly how you want to do that. But the impact of digital on science is is, is one thing, and and you were talking to that as well. But of course, it's the sh the changing nature of what forecasting and foresight is is sort of embedded in that question. But but it has also evolved over time. So right now, I understand that there is this term. Science 2.0, and maybe there's even a foresight 2.0, because you know, at, at least the way I read the history of foresight, in the origin story of foresight, they were also trying to. I maybe you agree with this. They went too far the other way. So instead of just sort of being journalistic, foresight got very predictive, right, and started using very, very quantified methodologies, perhaps to its detriment, because, you know, some of these Delphi studies and others were implying a lot of very scientific things, when in fact, arguably, 
you know, nobody knows the future, you know, no matter if you've talked to 10 people or a thousand people, right? You're right. And, and, and Delphi was attempting to quantify the unquantifiable a little bit. Tell me how, for, for you, what are the important concepts in, in this sort of uh, situation today? And, and how, how do you see that these topics have evolved up, up to today? Well, indeed, I, I, re- <clears throat> I, 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 I do think um, that when foresight tries to become predictive, This is not foresight. This is uh, marketing. I'm now making it very vulgar. And uh, because then you end up by doing extrapolation. You can only put in these robust models, things that you can extrapolate, which means by default that you are incrementally doing some, some, uh, some, uh, some predictions, so to speak. But that's not foresight. I mean, it, it, you don't need to be brilliant to, to predict now that we will have more mobile devices in the future, that we will have more uh, internet in the future. It was a little bit more difficult in the 80s to try to imagine uh, what uh, an environment of communication technologies that would allow <clears throat> everyone to communicate with everyone, uh, what, it would, what it would do. And that, I think, is the, where the real power of foresight Uh, comes in if it is well applied, that you think out of the box, not by inventing stories, because that's science fiction, but, but, but by trying to substantiate it as much as possible. And, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> I, I have a very, uh, a friend of mine, Ilka Tuomi, who, who, who wrote, who was in those days working at IPTS and who wrote the book, he's a Finnish, so he's from your side of the world. <laughs> uh, so uh, he wrote a book, Networks of Innovation. He, he made this analysis that too much predictive foresight kills foresight. And, and his analysis was, in, because it becomes impact analysis. And he said, well, in Nokia, he was principal scientist in Nokia, One of the reasons Nokia got out of the market is because they wanted to be so uh, so uh, well informed about the, the next wave of innovation and they wanted to have so much in-depth knowledge about it that they didn't dare to do anything anymore. Because the, the, the real disruptions in ICT are the non-predictive ones, the, the, are the ones which, which are not written on the wall but which slowly emerge because of the interplay, like I studied in my PhD in the past, between technologies and societies. Uh, no one, no one, I, I read this morning in uh, uh, an article by George Strawn, who is from the NAS, and, and you know, he's a well-known figure in, in the history of internet. He's probably one of the founding fathers. And he wrote this article of 75 years of computer technology and, and saying that no one of us foresaw the internet. No one of us foresaw the success, the, the success of, of Web2. If, if, if when, uh, when Zuckerberg started to Facebook, we would have done a predictive, quantifiable impact analysis on the future of Facebook, we would never, ever have predicted, not even remotely, uh, what, what, what Facebook has become. So there is, there is this part of, of, of uh, unpredictability, of, of deep disruptions that, that, that plays. But what foresight can do is try to say, well, hang on, These are dynamics going on here, which, which uh, will explode in one way or another. We do not know exactly how it will materialize, but we know that this is more than uh, an, an, uh, an incremental change, but a disruptive change. And that is actually how, if, if I look back at what I did in, in those 30 years, is how we looked at, at the impact of digital. Eh? So we... We started, uh, by, in particular in, in, in IPTS in Sevilla, trying to understand the, the fundamental changes 
in the 80s, 90s that, that, that information technologies would have on the economy, on social relations, on, on education. And one of the last parts of that was, was, well, okay, now we have seen all this. We have seen how it uh, has, has changed our, our, uh, our real world. But the last part we looked at was the part of science. And that's where the work on, on open science started, because in 2010, more or less, we started looking at, okay, if, if, if in other parts of our society, like the economy, uh, digital uh, innovation has really had disruptive effects. Can we assume that that, it, that the same will happen in open in science as a system, not not as a as as a, as a practice, as a practice as well, but as a system uh, in, in in particular. And of course, it was a bit easier to do that in science because we had lessons learned from how fundamental changes could be in the economy, eh? the the e-commerce, to to quote one of it, how fundamental changes could be in social, Facebook and what have you. Now, could the same type of deep change, deep disruption be expected uh, in science? And that's where we came up with, not not me only, but around the world, where we came up with this idea of, well, we, had, we went from web one to web two uh, to, to indicate the change from the internet to, to application-based uh, services. Can we have a, a science one and a science two uh, version as well? So science 2.0. And that became then the work we did the last 10 years. I wanted, I wanted to, benefit to benefit from, from uh, some of the experience you have working with, with the EU. Tell me a little bit about the evolution of um, the argument uh, also inside of the institution. So you worked, like you pointed out, on the IT side of Foresight initially, and then you moved into science. Would you say that the uh, institution, you know, the European Commission, was more receptive and, and able to kind of understand the Science 2.0 argument uh, versus kind of these more open-ended IT predictions? Uh, because right now it seems to me, and maybe you know, you are the better judge of this, but the, the science 2.0 argument seems to have really been taking off, if you can word it that way, inside of the EU. There is this very deep sense, I think, that, that there are some changes, and I want you to speak about those. But would you say that um, foresight as a discipline has, has kind of gotten more important in the EU over the last few years? Well, the, the, the formal and the official answer would be yes. Uh, because we even now have with the new commission, so with uh, President van der Ursula van der Leyen, we have one of the commissioners who has a portfolio in his title on foresight. Now, this is, to my knowledge, the first time in the history of the world, <laughs> as long as you go back, that uh, a top uh, a, a pop, a political person has foresight in his, in his uh, job description, not in the description, but in the title. So uh, that means that, that, that um, at least at that level, formally speaking, foresight is being taken very serious now. Has it always been the case? Yes and no. Uh, in the days we worked together in Sevilla, um, we, so the commission created an institute on foresight uh, uh, in the beginning of, the, of, of this uh, millennium. And uh, we did a lot of work, not only me, but my colleagues as well, on on contributing from that perspective to the policies in Brussels. But the reason uh, why it was 
deployed then and why we were relatively successful is because, first of all, there were top people in Brussels who wanted it. So it was not systemically part of the system. It was a a personal relationship. And we had directors in Sevilla, uh, in particular Jean-Marie Cadieu, the the late Jean-Marie Cadieu, who who was a a computer engineer uh, from IBM and from the NATO, by the way, uh, who, who was absolutely convinced that in order to better grasp uh, and to, to make better research and technology policies, you needed to understand where these things are going. So the status of foresight in, 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 in Brussels has been, flex, has been uh, volatile. It depends. It depends on the people. However, now, being part as a formal uh, uh, task of one of the commissioners, it will become much more institutionalized. And that is something I've tried in vain uh, with, with, with colleagues and friends from, from academia in 2013-14, we had proposed a, a way to embed foresight as a systematic, systemic and systematic contribution in decision-making in, in Brussels. That failed uh, for, for many reasons, but, um, but, but the truth is there, there that it is probably because, again, at, at some point we simply did not cross uh, the skepticism of, of the policymaker, because <clears throat> in the end, they are the clients. If, if, you're com- if there is no commissioner wanting to buy this, well, there is no reason for a bureaucracy to do it. Now, if I come uh, to, to, to the first part of your question, Tron, about the, the receptiveness of Brussels for this whole open science uh, uh, change and, and the fact that I think it is fair to say that the Commission has been one of the leaders in the world in, in, in developing the policy, uh, which is quite integrated, and, and me and my colleagues in Brussels, we played a big role in that. Now, the reason why they are so receptive is, again, is, is, is not because it was institutional, the result of an institutional anchoring of foresight in decision-making, but the result of, on the one hand, a director general, a dire, uh, some of the directors... And some of the, the, the heads of cabinet of, of the commissioners who, who believed in what we were doing and who saw the value of it. But on the other hand, uh, and that is something very sp- particular in, in science, because in, in, in the open science thing, because a lot of the scientists, a lot of the, the, the people hoovering around the systems in Brussels who try to influence the policy making, a lot of the the discussions in, in, in the scientific uh, associations across Europe went in the same direction as what we wanted to point out with open science. So there was a demand for it from inside the, the house, but there was also a push for it from, from the, the final clients of science, namely the universities and the scientists. And that explains, I think, why we were relatively successful with a small group of people to push the agenda and to develop the policy. That's that's fascinating. It kind of reminds me, actually, that one of your colleagues, who shall in this context be unnamed, at the end of my sojourn there in Seville, he sort of took me aside and said, "You know, Trond, uh, as a career advice, I, I you know I I see that you're very interested in foresight, but I'm not sure if it's going in the right direction." So I think, you know, he you know this person was was very conscious that that it is. You know, it's it's not a it's a topic. It's a volatile topic, and he was sensing at the time that 
at least in the context of the EU, which was our discussion, right, that it wasn't necessarily going in the right direction. So I guess it, it oscillates. Uh, but but more interestingly, let's go into deep, uh, uh, deeply into Science 2.0. What what is Science 2.0? It's very easy to say Science One and Science Two, but uh, clearly it has to do with digital. But in what way is digital shaping Science Two? When did it happen? And what uh, should we expect from Science 2.0? Okay, before, before we do that, I, I make a little prediction. I, I predict the, the massive return of foresight due to Corona. Uh, there are too many people saying, well, you know, some of us said it, why didn't you listen? Now, we cannot afford, we lost 100, 100, 100 trillion last year in the world economy. Uh, if we invest a fraction of that in foresight capacities uh, on next pandemics, on next uh, systemic challenges, we probably can win 99 trillion x, 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 x. So I really think that, that, that the case for it's probably better to finance a little bit, a few people running around trying to come up with wild ideas than not having it at all. This being said, so I come back to your question now. Um, so... But it makes the point of the volatility, of course. It's always a reaction to a crisis. So Science 2.0 is, is, of course, well, the, the, when we started working on it, we used the term Science 2.0 to mark the difference with Science 1. Science 1 is a system as we used to know it since World War II. You know, the scientific system uh, largely based on brilliant individuals, brilliant laboratories, uh, doing in-house their research, premium-based um, premium and, and so forth, publishing it, and then uh, the next cycle of research. So let's say the internet one. Huh? Then, and then Science 2.0 is, is not the opposite, but is on the other side of the spectrum, whereby rather than having any, everything in-house, the modus operandi of working is by sharing. Why? Because sharing allows you to be faster, to be more collaborative. It is also a modus operandi of collaborative action across laboratories, across, across universities. And it is in particularly um, uh, suggesting that rather than having, a, let's say, sender-receiver model, you have a sender-receiver-receiver-sender model, so to speak, in science. So anyone can contribute uh, on condition that the resources, data, and publications uh, are, are being shared. I mean, that's a long explanation. So, it, and, and we actually um, came up later on with, with what I think is a, is a much better understood uh, uh, concept then. And we called it, not, not we, but the, the, the people in the community called it open science. So you, you move from a closed science environment uh, to an open science environment, a little bit similar to the open source and the open software uh, movement. And so you have in-house a premium development of software, or you can have the Linux model. Well, open science is the Linux model, and, and the old way of doing it is the proprietary model uh, of the past. And that is the definition. Now, you know, uh, before we, we had our discussion, I googled it in Google Scholar Open Science. You have 3 trillion um, uh, references to it. So there are so many things going on that so what's in the name, the definition? Much more important is to see that it is a different way of doing science, open collaborative sharing, based on open standards, which doesn't mean free, based on open standards on sharing of knowledge, um, 
and on uh, sharing of the whole life cycle. And it is much more than only uh, producing an output. It is actually real-time science uh, being made available across uh, the different actors of the scientific field. So, Jean-Claude, to what extent have all actors gone along with this? Because, you know, I guess if you just take a, a similar thing in any, in any industry, and not that science is an industry or similar in its logic, but, you know, if you look at uh, any kind of revolutionary change in other fields, there's always institutions that have a little bit to gain in slowing that change down because they have some vested interests. So I could just imagine in Europe, I mean, there are some science academies that have done things in a certain way that have built up a lot of reputation on their brand alone. Now they're going to be expected to start sharing. There are publishers who have built up their massive fiefdoms around famous journals that are, you know, that have all of their access criteria uh, you know, associated with them. How has this process gone and what are the important institutions that have started to embrace this and what are kind of the tensions currently? If we look at sort of 2021, where, where do we stand with, with this open science? Is everybody practicing it, would you say, or is it 20% or, or where are we? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a very good question. Eh? And, and um, so, so, you know, first of all, Science, by default, is a conservative community. Scientists are extremely progressive and want to push the boundaries of everything except their own practice. Uh, <laughs> so that is a, that's a taken. It's, it's not a coincidence that a lot of these digital innovations comes last in, in, in science. Secondly, any digital disruption has always been welcomed with skepticism. Why do we need the internet? Why do I need to order flowers? Uh, over the internet in, in New York? Why do I go uh, to Yelp? Why do I need Facebook? Well, you know that much better than me even. Eh? So, so, so you, you, by default, a fundamental disruption is, is met by skeptics. The same happened with open science. So when we started working on it, beginning of, of, of the last uh, decade, we got a lot of, a lot of uh, trouble making the argument inside the house across Europe uh, not everywhere, but it was always the same thing. It will uh, open sharing will kill science. Sharing will kill the quality. Opening up results will uh, invite to to malicious uh, uh, scientists and so forth. So I, I had even a PowerPoint in those days what, that only um, dealt with all these kind of uh, criticism, and I one by one I, I singled out, you know, but hang on this and hang on that and so forth. Now I would say that today. And the resistance was there. The, in the beginning, the academies, uh, the academies, they established, uh, the, 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 as, as my friend Barent Mons from Leiden University, with whom I worked on the science cloud, always say, the silverbacks in academia, uh, these are the academies. Uh, they, 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 of course, thought that, you know, these, these bureaucrats from Brussels, what the fuck do they, what, sorry, what the hell do they know uh, from science? So this is all nonsense and, and so forth. I would say that, so the main resistance was there, indeed, by the academies. Surprisingly enough, uh, by the young scientists, in particular those who are on the threshold of making their career. Uh, and thirdly, the main resistance came from, uh, not resistance, but skepticism from the publishing houses. Now, the academies... Because there you have a generational problem. Eh? It is 
it was quite clear to me that, you know, it, it reminded me of, of the discussions when I did my PhD, when we introduced uh, the computers at university, we had exactly the same discussion. If you, if you write your PhD on a computer, you, you will lose the quality of your analysis. You have to do it by pen. <laughs> That's a tough argument to make these days. So, no, but that, that happened there. And, and you, I, I'm sure that, I mean, I, I think there are still one or two professors at my university refusing to use a computer. Anyway, so that, 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 that passed by. Young researchers made a much more substantial point saying that, yeah, but hang on. If, if we go for open publications, uh, where is the recognition for my work? And there they, 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 they conflated two things that did not have to be conflated. So it is not because you publish something immediately uh, openly available that the peer review process behind it disappears, on the contrary. Without peer review, no science. It is just speeding up the communication cycle. So I would say that to a large extent, these, the, the researchers, once they understand that opening up their work and others opening up their work leads to much more possibilities for interesting research because you can combine data sets, because you can much faster get to know what is going on. Once they understood that, uh, they, they, they came on board because I, you know, I told them, you know, okay, all of you, eh, you're all member of ResearchGate. You're all member of Academia EU. Why are you a member? Well, you know, because I find my peers immediately, because we exchange ideas. I drop a question in ResearchGate. Do anyone know something about this? And I have an answer in a day. Well, that's open science. So that's one of the benefits which would be impossible before that. And then finally, the third group that, that was uh, resistant out of skepticism and out of business models was the publishers. Uh, to, a, to a large extent... Uh, the, the, the dominating, uh, so the big publishing houses uh, until recently uh, were skeptical about open science and open access because they feared that this would be uh, detrimental to their business model, which it will. It's quite clear that if you, if, you, if you kill all subscriptions and you only ask for one fee when you publish the article, uh, and then it is available to, for the rest of eternity, you have less revenue, crystal clear. But in the meantime, they have also understood that um, the future of scientific publishing is no longer only the article. The future is also publishing the data. The future is, is also publishing or producing or developing the services to make sense out of the data that will lead to the article. So they are developing their businesses on everything that is underlying the article or before that. So they, they understand that, that just like e-commerce, uh, that, that it's no longer one product, their, 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 publish, their, um, their uh, unique selling proposition. Their unique selling proposition is being a platform for the whole life cycle of research and then get revenue from all parts uh, of that platform. So all that together and uh, made that <clears throat> I would say that around 2018-19 uh, we, we the, 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 the skepticism towards open science policy in Europe has 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 gone and it has become uh, it, it now it's no longer a question yes or no it's a question how to implement it so universities across uh, the continent, funders across the continent are all implementing open access, open data, research data management plans, policies and strategies. 
Uh, publishing houses, <coughs> the big ones, Elsevier and Nature, <coughs> are all uh, uh, switching to open access models. Eh? Elsevier is launching an open access model every three days. Uh, uh, an open access journal, sorry, every, every three days. Uh, Nature has recently announced uh, to, to be available or to switch to, to open access. Uh, real or, 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 or uniquely open access uh, publishing houses like MDM, MDPI or, or, or Frontiers have huge, relatively speaking, huge success in terms of volumes. Uh, why? Because, you know, Frontiers calculated this. So uh, an article that is downloaded uh, immediately because available um, in open access is quoted three times more than a, non, than a paywall article. So if that, if that is an argument that you, you, you bring to the scientist, yeah, but hang on, if you publish open access, your work has three times more value of three times more output than non-open access, well, you don't need to say much more to, to make them choose uh, for, for, for a new outlet. Big publishing houses like uh, Taylor, and, uh, Taylor and Francis and, and Wiley has bought uh, young incumbents uh, like uh, Faculty 1000 or, um, or Hindawi, which are open access um, uh, uh, publishing houses. So they, they, they bring them on board in order to understand how to do it, which is a little bit how, how the big players in ICT buy up all the new, uh, the new applications, uh, Facebook buying, Instagram buying, WhatsApp when it was uh, a Mickey Mouse uh, app application, because they simply see see that that is now the new way to do it. Well, you see exactly the same happening here. So I would say that this is so fascinating because what you're telling me and, and, you know, I have been aware of open science for a very long time, but I haven't tracked it in any way in the detail that you have tracked it. And it strikes me that compared to a lot of other revolutions that are ongoing, this one is only known inside of a relatively small community. Of course, if you are a scientist, you're now dealing with this, right? Because you're publishing and you're making these decisions. But really, largely, unless you are deeply steeped in science, this move that you're talking about that has been happening over the last three to five years, I do not read about it in any mainstream publication. Why is that? Well, you know, science is, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit exotic. Eh? Um, I mean, scientists are a, a small scientific, a small professional population. Well, not that small. Eh? We, we have 2 million researchers in Europe, 10 million researchers, professional around the world. But also, you know, um, you don't read about it because it happens without people knowing that it happens. Let me explain this if you, if you don't mind, uh, Trond. So if you look at the last year, eh? So many, many fantastic and less fantastic things <laughs> happened. But so we had Corona. The scientific community, well, we still have it. The scientific community reacted to that in an unprecedented way, a massive mobilization of resources and people, but also in a completely new way. All publications that were, and I think we have now 200,000 peer-reviewed articles on Corona published, which is massive uh, in terms of volume, in terms of speed. All these publications are immediately available and they were made immediately available by anyone contributing to it anywhere in the world because they wanted the knowledge to be distributed much faster 
than the normal publication uh, 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 life cycle, which is between six months and two years, and then you have to pay for it. People said that the challenge of COVID is so massive that we must speed up. This is open access. The data underlying all this work were, was stored and made available in formats that it was interoperable between the different players. Why? Same reason, to get better and faster results. So in a, in a large, to a very large degree, the way the science was organized, the corona science were organized, is a case textbook example of open science, but no one calls it that way. Um, because it is, yeah, I just do it, you know, a microbiologist in, 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 in India uh, putting his data in, in, a, in a repository in a format that is uh, shareable by anyone doesn't call it open science. He doesn't care. He, he makes his data available. So de facto it is happening without being called that way. But Jean-Claude, I'm sensing something here that is a tension because you are at the one point yeah. you're saying this is moving from the publication to the data being the business model where you can earn the money. But on the other hand, you know, if people are saying data is the new oil or the new oxygen or whatever it is, supposedly that means that it's valuable, but you're also saying increasingly with COVID, they were letting some of that data out for free. But surely money has to come in somewhere. Tell me all about this idea around data, okay? I, I accept the argument that data is more important, but I think... A lot of us are wondering what's going to happen to ownership around data. So access and interoperability, okay, uh, that's a whole other issue. But there's still money flowing and there has to be money flowing for these systems to be sustainable. Like a fully open sourced database for all of life science doesn't strike me as a big incentive for, well, even for vaccines, you know, in the long term, but certainly not for other types of drug discoveries if we want those to keep happening. And that's just one part of science, right? And then, you know, you can think about population level data in health or any other domain generally. Um, so, so tell me, what are these new business models around data that you find commensurate with open science, but still leaving a way to earn money either as a researcher or as an industry or even, I guess, as a government? Yes. Well, first of all, um, it, it's, it's a very legitimate question and, and um, I, well, we, we were confronted with it many times because the, the, the mistake in the reasoning is that open is equated with free. And that's not the case. It's not because I make my data available that I give away my copyright or my patent. Nothing will change there. Nothing at all. What I do give away is, of course, that the exclusive use or reinterpretation of my data. That's for sure. But that I, you know, there are many studies proving that once data have been used, the same group never ever uses them again. Uh, because they move on with something different. So the data are produced, they are stored somewhere, and then they are lost for eternity. Um, so the, the argument that um, by making the data available, you lose the spin-offs of the data is simply uh, a wrong argument because you can still copyright patent, you can do what you want there. Uh, we, are not, we are not talking about communist science, eh? we're talking about uh, uh, open science. So 
there is there is much more business to be made in because it goes much faster and you can much quicker come up with new ideas by sharing this then by uh, keeping it premium inside the house. And you know who gave me that idea? That's a little story that, that, that I can, can tell you if you want. You know, I, I was once invited um, at, at the World Economic Forum in Davos. In the beginning, when we started working on it, because I was part of an expert group of, of the World Economic Forum, you know. And um, so um, I, I, we went there, 30 centimeters of snow, and at seven... So, you know, the system in Davos is you have to book your rooms, you get invited to LA. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's quite cacophonic. But anyway, I got invited for a seven o'clock breakfast meeting by the CTO of Nike. Um, and uh, it was a little, group, little meeting, seven o'clock in the morning, dark, cold. That, was, that, that meeting, like the book of Echil, the solar pool, that made me think a lot because... The guy was saying that, listen, if the, in those days, huh, if after two years what we have patented is not being used for a new product in my company, I give it away. I just give it away to the open. Anyone who wants can make a product on condition that it is not competitive with something that we have. Uh, and then yeah, that's quite logical. Huh? If I take his patent to make a, a, a shoe uh, to be competitive with Nike, that could not happen. But if I want to use it to use better camping gear for the Amazon uh, or for uh, refugee camps, in, in that was the example. If I remember well, 10 years ago, that was the example he gave. Go ahead. I, I Nike, take a share via my venture capital branch in your spin-off. And there we go. Well, that's actually the, 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 the how sharing and that's also how Google, that's also how most of the software companies work. Right? Yeah. So, so they set aside some field of use restrictions in the patent, but they let other people use it on, you know, as, a, as a platform of innovation. Exactly. And, and, and the point he made is that sharing is better for business than keeping it premium. And then we had a whole discussion that morning on, you know, the old model of, of the ICT industry, IBM, having everything in-house, hundreds of thousands of people, Massive amount of patents being completely bypassed by startups like Google, like Microsoft, like in those days. It's fascinating, right? That is that that's even possible. <clears throat> it's fascinating, and why 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 can you compete? Why could they compete with Google because they share uh, with IBM because they share? Otherwise, it would have been impossible. Hmm. And the same, you know, so the same goes for 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 uh, open source. Eh? So. Everyone was in the beginning laughing at at, uh, at Linux and Red and um, what is it? Uh, the software company that that offers the services on Linux Reddit. Uh, I forgot the name. Anyway, it was you sold mean for Red five Hat? Years. No. Hmm? Red Hat. Yeah, no. Red Hat. So it yeah. was sold. It was sold for five billion two years ago to to, to IBM. Yeah. To Microsoft, I think so. That's not bad for something where there was no business. Eh? So you see, I think this is the same for for the whole open science argument. So, but what is fundamental? Uh, the fundamental point you touched about Trump is that it can only work the sharing if there is reciprocity. So I share with you if you share with me. Otherwise, I give it to you. And secondly, if there is traceability of the data. So that in whatever happens, one can see that 
At the origin of all this, there was uh, Trond or there was Jean-Claude at some point in time, and that I get credits for it at some mm. way, in some way. I wanted to move now uh, towards the end here, towards uh, even into the future, just benefiting again from your foresight, because there's so much going on right now that we have covered that's not commonly known. But on the other hand, let's look into the next decade and even a little bit beyond Jean-Claude. So let's say you're right. Open science is moving ahead at speed. And Corona and the importance of the COVID phenomenon is leading, you just told us, to an increased interest in foresight. What is all of that foresight going to generate and what kind of society are we looking at? Where, where how deep will uh, these changes, how deeply will these changes impact society in the next 10, 15, 20 years? What, what are we looking at? Are we looking at the typical crystal uh, ball predictions of the 70s and, you know, some projections to, you know, 10x, 20x, 30x better? Or are we looking at uh, flying, air, you know, flying cars? And actually, we are already looking at flying cars. Um, wh where are we moving? What, what are the big shifts that you are would be looking at if someone said, you know, design the new foresight study? What are the aspects? Uh, is it even possible to chart the dimensions right now for, for, for what this open science, even just taking that phenomenon, where is that going to lead us? How different is science going to be now, 10 years from now? Well, indeed, I think so. So to, to be faithful to what we started discussing with, that the, 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 the most important thing foresight can do is not uh, short-term trend analysis, but long-term uh, disruptive uh, changes. I think that we are moving to 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 a, a new paradigm in science, whereby not a paradigm, but a new reality in science, whereby the publishing of data will be the most important end product of the scientific process, and the article or the text for most of the sciences will be the narrative to understand the data. Uh, I think we will go to see, to be, be, because that's what you see, as, as far as I understand it, at least as a non-life scientist. So that's what you see happening in, 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 uh, in the corona research. It's a continuous stream of new correlations, causalities, uh, testing hypotheses that, that are being published with an explanation on top of it to make sense out of the graphics. But, but it's actually a lot of that... Uh, uh, number crunching is done machine-based. machine, machine based, eh? So the, the, the machine, the algorithms are traveling to the data sets, trying to find whatever is instructed to find and then come back with the results. So a lot of the science that will, will be produced to 10, 15 years onwards, and again, that's an idea that I, 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 I gracefully steal from my friend Barend, is, is will be machine-made. Machine um, and the interpretation of it will still be human because because someone had to, to, to gorge what is the relevance of all that in, 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 in the mid to long term. That, of course, that's where the human will come in. But a lot of what we do will probably be, a scientist will be uh, halfly uh, automated. A lot of the publications will be micro-publications, a, a new causality, a new algorithm or what have you. 
it, of course, there are exceptions, humanities and so forth. But that is that is one thing. So science will just just like uh, programming. Uh, so you 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 will not be uh, you know programming is no longer writing uh, yourself all the code. It is actually using software to 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 write uh, new code in a way that it is almost a, a natural language. So probably science will go in that direction, because and that is fundamental. What we I think, at least I think it is fundamental. What we see happening is that the status of science has changed. So to, to put it very short and very bluntly, for a long time, scientists, science has been, I produce an insight in an article or a book, and that's a unique view, which is there for eternity. Now, we know now that that is not the case. In physics, in biology, in, in, in certainly the lower you go down to the soft sciences, uh, uh, in economy and sociology and so forth, everything we say now can be disputed in three to five years because we have new data to support it. So it will become a constant stream of knowledge production rather than producing the unique insight which is valid for eternity. That's where the Nobel Prize came for. You make such a contribution that it is there for the rest of, of the world. Well, if you take most uh, Nobel Prizes in economics, most of them are already... Uh, being challenged uh, within five to ten years after they were they were granted, so that's what that's what I think is is epistemologically, if I can use that difficult word, is happening. The status, the value of what you produce, be, uh, becomes different from a unique project for a product from eternity to a constant flow. Probably one exception, which is mathematics, because if in mathematics, if you prove something to be a or B, it is therefore most of the proofs are there for the rest of the of eternity. So, Jean Claude, flowing from your very interesting argument here about the narrative and the data, though, um, and and the fact that some things aren't for eternity, and and that you know, open science implies collaboration. Would, and I'm thinking back to the subject of your professorship of communication, or you you've been working with the topic of communication also throughout your life. Will communication skills then become almost like a fundamental core differentiator between a good scientist and a great scientist? Or is it still going to be the interpretive human capability that's going to resemble what a giant brain, kind of a Newton-type brain, would do in the past? In other words, are these integrative skills still you know, pure sort of scientific IQ? Or is because of all this collaboration, I mean, I was just thinking that the people who can organize that kind of communication, either as individuals or as teams or as organizations, better than others, surely must have bigger advantages now than they had in the 18th century or even, you know, 30 years ago with science. What is the implication there for what is the exclusive domain of the scientific individual, you know, in, in 10 years from now. What is, if you were educating the top brains of Europe, right, you, you wanted to design a crack team, what would that track, how different would that crack team be 10 years from now versus 10 years ago? And what well, skills would you put into that team? Well, that's, that's, that's a very interesting question uh, because it, 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 it allows me to say something which, which I think is fundamental, you know. I really think that the future of science, and it's already there, is the brilliant team. 
is not the brilliant individual. So it is, the, the complexity is, is of that matter, that one person, you know, the old encyclopedic dream of one person, Diderot uh, uh, knows it all, Da Vinci uh, uh, knows it all and can say anything about everything. Well, that's over. Uh, in my personal view, okay, you, you might have an exception every now and then, uh, but even even uh, even there, I think it is the, the 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 team that can best collaborate with the best available knowledge that they need for the problem they want to address will be the successful team. Uh, and those teams will probably be led by brilliant individuals, but the brilliance will be more in being able to manage it than being able to to think it myself. That's my personal personal view. And and if you take social sciences, I mean. One of the people I admire most scientifically is Yuval Harari. Uh, the guy is, but he is harvesting thousands and thousands of hours of work of others, uh, all the books that he assembles and the people that work with him into a, into a new story. And the brilliance of Harari is, of course, that he found a new story. So you will always have that. But he can only do that because you have all the rest under it. So that's one thing I wanted to say on that in that respect. But, and I do think uh, also to come back to what you said in the beginning that what will become extremely important in such a view of science as a data, as a, as a constant stream of knowledge is data visualization. Uh, if you follow my argument that most will become data publications, data driven and then narrative is, is the article, the easiest way to tell my story is by having a nice visual. Or, or an interesting visual. That visual can be complex, the visual can be, uh, ca can be simple, but it is crystal clear that you cannot make sense out of huge amounts of data by writing them out or putting them in an Excel sheet. You need to find other ways to make it visual, and that can be many different things, and that in itself is, is, is really what communicates the essence of data science much more than, than an Excel sheet or, or a written article. So I, I do think that where statistics were the essential add-on to science in the 20th century, data visualization will be the essential add-on to science in the 21st century. Wow. On that note, I wanna I wanna thank you for a fascinating thinking, Jean Claude. These are these are important issues and. Uh, it is actually interesting on this day that in the United States, at least, and perhaps around the world, some people are thinking this this was the darkest day in in the history of the U.S., at least in the mo modern U.S. But there, are, you know, and largely, you know, a lot of this has to do with a, a denial of of certain certain facts. So you could kind of be pessimistic uh, this morning. But I also feel very uplifted by your perspectives on science and communication because, indeed. It may be a subculture that is science, but it is a subculture that is increasingly potent and active. And, you know, no matter what kinds of problems we are faced with, it would seem that what we shouldn't be overconfident about what science can accomplish because these things, after all, they take a lot of coordination. But there is some hope here. And, and, and you at least give me the sense that uh, open science, clearly for you, is an improvement, and 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 you you seem cautiously optimistic, I guess, in in, in that sense. Give me a, a last take on that. You know, uh, is open science is it 
the ultimate paradigm, do you think, for science, or are we likely to see a 3.0? Well, you know, um, having been now following digital innovation for, let's say, since I was a student for 40 years, every time I thought, okay, now we had it. First the microcomputer, then the internet, then the web, then the mobile web, then artificial, then ambient intelligence, and so on and so on. So I think uh, it would be a big mistake to think that that, uh, there will be no science to 3.0 because most likely uh, it it will happen. But what I would like to offer you as a last take is that, you know, it is not because you have the, and that is painfully um, illustrating what some of of, of the evolutions in the US lately, it's not because you have the best scientists that you have the best policy or the best politics. So uh, one does not lead immediately to to the other. And I do think that, and, but I don't have the answer there uh, at all. I do really think that we need to work much harder on bridging science with policymaking, be it via foresight. That is certainly a very important contributor, but there should be much, much more. And, you know, having been in, 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 in the heart of, of, of the policy making, I do know that you do not convince policymakers of the pertinence of your science b- with a report. That doesn't work. We need to find other ways there without being populistic. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed this conversation. I hope our listeners did too. Uh, have a wonderful rest of the day, Jean-Claude. And um, We'll hopefully connect with you uh, at a later stage and, and get some updates on Science 3. Yes, yes. Well, if I'm still around, we do that and you. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity and for the, for the chat. Great. You have just listened to episode 84 of the Futurized podcast with host Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the path towards Science 2.0. In this conversation, we talked about the impact of digital on science. J.C. Bergelman's career spans the EU foresight, media, and tech assessment, and we discussed the role of foresight in EU policy. What are the big challenges? And the fallout from COVID-19, which had compelled science from close to open, from premium to collaborative, and is a fifth revolution in science irreversible? And what has been learned? We talked about how the business model is shifting from articles to data and touched on next decade science and publishing. My takeaway is that data is the new oxygen and science is opening up. How quickly will it happen? Quicker than you would think. Yet, proprietary publishing models still have some gas in the tank and don't misunderstand that with open science everything will somehow be free. Scientific institutions, teams of scientists and perhaps even individual scientists will rather be able to price themselves more accurately. There might be a bigger discrepancy between good science and bad science, and perhaps less of the latter. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 22 on the future of engineering education, episode 51 on AI for learning, or episode 55 on AI for medicine. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.